What up, y'all? I'm Brendan Whitted, and I'll be your host on this episode of Politics Aside, the politics podcast on the That's Black Male podcast network. As always, I'm joined by D.C. litigator Edward Williams II and Florida prosecutor Adrian Mood. We ask that on whatever platform you're listening, you please rate, review, subscribe, follow. Without further ado, let's get to it. What is good it is, as always, uh, wonderful to, to to talk with my boys. This is a, this is a nice time, uh, a nice weekly, or sometimes multiple times a week to get up uh, with family. How you doing, Adrian? How's uh, how how are things going for you down there in Florida? Uh, things are going about as Florida as they can go. Um, but uh, all all in all, pretty good, pretty good. Can't complain. That's that's definitely what's up. I know it's uh you know usually it's a kind of just like a or whatever, like, hey, what, uh, what's good? What's 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 happening with you? And but you know, by the week, the, the like the what's good is, is has become a much more loaded question. Like, what's good? It's like, mm, what is good? What, uh, <laughs> what exactly is NBA good playoffs right? are back on? Yeah, that's that's, pretty, that's really pretty. That's really pretty much all it is, man. Like, it seems like every time uh, I open Twitter or. Uh, start reading the news it's uh it's not great you know what i mean and it's been like that for quite some time now but it just seems like the closer we get to this election it kind of has been getting like ramped up a little bit i don't know it just seems like there's there's a kind of a palpable tension um that is only going to increase until we get to uh until we get to november yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody, I think, is starting to realize what the stakes are. It's unclear whether or not, and we'll talk about this with the polls, uh, whether or not <laughs> Trump is enjoying a convention bounce or whether uh, the uh, civil unrest is led to him getting a very small movement in the polls. But, uh, you know, this, the stakes are real, and I think uh, Trump land realizes he's losing right now. Hey, uh, Ed, how are you doing, man? I didn't want to jump too far into it without uh, without checking in on you, too. Yep, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, you know, we are, what, six months into uh, being in our homes. Um, so for the uh, kind of, you know, archetypal extrovert, this has been uh, a little piece of hell. So, you know, <laughs> here we are. Uh uh, so you know, I'm, I'm I'm making the the most of it by uh, by trying to fake human interaction as much as possible. So. Yeah, I, I can only imagine because I'm not I'm not an extrovert person. I'm not much of a people person at all. Yep. Uh, so it's it's less difficult on me. But I I know uh, there have been some friends and family members I'm like constantly checking in on because you know there's not. It's not a ton to do outside of you know uh, you know maybe work for, working from home or yep. you know maybe the 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 occasional trip to the grocery store which is which has become like the new club spot um, <laughs> apparently you know <laughs> Studio Fifty Four Win Dixie so. so you laugh but we were out we we were making a, a late night um, you know McDonald's ice cream and apple pie uh, run because that's oh that's you were taking height. chances with that ice cream machine not working <laughs> you were really out here about to get okay. played so I'm I'm, tell, I'm telling myself about where we live but the ice cream machine is always working at our local McDonald's I know I know mm, I know must be nice must be nice <laughs> and, uh, I'm just saying I'm just saying do you ever get nosebleeds from up there in that wealthy person I'm just all I'm saying is uh, is for how much we pay for a mortgage. The ice cream machine is always on, okay? So, <laughs> but back to the point of the story, 
we are uh we so we go to mcdonald's and it's like i don't know friday night 9 30 something o'clock and the parking lot is full of high schoolers like sitting on their cars and hang, literally hanging out in the shopping center in front of the grocery store i was like this is what it's come this is the new club this is it this this uh, they were uh, like they were just hanging out like sitting on top of their cars drinking i'm sure uh that that's what they do now it's kind of turned every city into a small town because that's like that's that's, right. that's what that's you right. would that's what you would do right you would go right. post up outside of a walmart i guess is what they do and just like <laughs> kind of just, just chill and go hang so like yeah uh you know taking it taking it back to the old school joint yeah uh the schools coming back is just always kind of a weird thing because they're yeah. they're really in the transition mode uh in, in in a way that you know when you're younger like i can't imagine what this would be like if you're you know, we talk a lot about like little kids going back to school and stuff. But like, right. if you're 15, 16 years old, you're not a child. So you actually do have things outside the home that you would right. be going and attending and, you know, like school functions or, or, or social gatherings and stuff like that. So I'm sure it's it's super hard for them because they were just kind of getting their yep. independent wings. So, yeah, that's uh, that's got to be trash. But um, I, this is a new segment that, that we've started called What You Want. Yep, it's a, it's a time when I, I I like to ask uh, every you know just across the that's black male podcast board if you uh, are reading something, watching something, listening to some music, just any content that you're that you're consuming. Uh, this is a good time to ask about it because you know folks, as mentioned, are at the crib, and so <laughs> you know if you if you are running out of things to watch on Netflix or you're if you're <laughs> if you have read reread that book that you bought for the third time and you just look for something so. Uh, Mood, I'll start with you. Is there anything that uh, that you want right now? Uh, I just finished Legend of Korra, so it's pretty good. Uh, about to and watch got Project Power watched. Pretty pretty good movie. Uh, I just watched Inception again to prepare myself for Tenet on Thursday. Uh, another Christopher Nolan film um, and uh, getting ready for The Boys on Amazon on yes. the fourth second season of The Boys. So I'm going to try to go back and circle back and rewatch season one of The Boys. Which is just a surprise came out of nowhere, and it's just compelling and excellent and hilarious and terrifying all at the same time. Yeah, the the boy, I definitely got to get him back on my first season of the boys because I didn't, I hadn't heard well, when I watched it, I hadn't heard about it yet, and so like I I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to, and so definitely been fiending for the second season of that. You said it drops Friday, right? Right, the fourth, September fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, recording this on the first, so yeah, uh, drops on the fourth. Looking forward to it. Um, you know. The first season caught me off guard too. I hadn't heard yeah. much about it. Started watching it, I was like, "Oh, oh!" <laughs> Next episode, please. That's that's exactly how it gets you too. Because like, oh, that's what we're on. Uh, 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 Ed, what are what are you? Uh, cons- what content are you consuming right now? Um, you know, just reliving uh, the verses from la- from 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 Monday night. Uh, Brandy versus Monica. 1.2, 1.3 million views, most viewed uh, versus in uh, in history at, to this point. Um, Kamala Harris uh, <laughs> made, a, made a impromptu uh, uh, um, appearance at hey, y'all. Uh, in her Howard gear, of course, because how else is you gonna say you black at the versus without you know uh, wearing some Howard gear? So. Uh, it was, you know, so yeah, I, and to be fair, um, both Brandy and Monica's albums are like recharting this week. Um, mm-hmm. They have 30 out of the top 40 uh, 
uh, trending uh, tracks on Apple iTunes right now, and um, and five out of Brandy's seven albums are in the top ten today. Wow. So yeah, like like the the verses was um, people were remembering uh, what good R and B from the '90s sounds and feels like, and apparently said run her her good. coin. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, they, well, they, well, I want to ask because all right, so I didn't watch because I was I was watching NBA stuff. Right, uh, but like I saw, I kept scrolling down my timeline because I love the commentary, <laughs> the commentary really as great. much as, or if not more than the actual music music itself. Yep. And so, like, I kept seeing, oh, Monica's got this for oh, Brandy. Oh, you're you're crazy. Like, I I would like to know your opinion. I don't know if you're a Monica or Brandy guy, but your opinion, who who won the Giants? So, uh, so I, I so I'm gonna be diplomatic in some ways. I do think that they actually had a, they both were really strong. Boom. Um, but but here's the thing. I mean, I'm I'm more of a Brandy fan. However, uh, Monica, I had forgotten how many hits Monica had, and so there was there was a there were several moments last night. It was like, I was like, you know, Brandy would play something, and I'd be like, Monica, she ain't got nothing. This is that's it. That you know, that's that's the end of the game. And she would play, she would play a deep cut, and I'd be like, oh man, I remember where I was when it came out. <laughs> like, it was like. I was, I, there were several moments where I was I was watching it um, with my partner, and there were several moments where I was like, I was in love with somebody different than when the song was hitting. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, the that's the worst. When when music reminds you of somebody in, you know, specific, and you you are no longer cool with that somebody specific, it will it will ruin the whole it will ruin the whole song, ruin the whole album, might mess around, ruin, um, ruin the whole artist for you. All I'm saying is, people got texts last night, not from me. <laughs> But I'm sure that out of that 1.3 million people watching the verses, there were some random messages sent last night that were a direct reflection of the songs being played. That's all I'm gonna say. Hey man, shoot or shoot, <laughs> shoot or shoot. Uh, I'm 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 gonna transition um, to kind of like a, a larger wrap up of the RSC. We we had gone over a little bit more in detail about what's going on with the Democratic National Convention. I just decided that we're not going to go over it in as much detail for Republican National Convention. For obvious reasons, um, yep. but if you have like any large sweeping takeaways uh, or 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 messages that you saw that were um, proliferated throughout, um, what what you thought about those? And I'll start with you, Moon. So, um, I mean, the big thing with the RNC was an attempt to try to humanize Trump in a way, right? And the way they tried to mainly humanize Trump was to say. Yeah, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole, right? <laughs> he's he's the asshole that fights for you. Like they couldn't really get away from the fact that he's not a nice guy. He, he says things that are crazy, and uh, I think even Ivanka Trump acknowledges much about his Twitter feed and how insane it is at times. And then you had like the like the continuous marching through of a, of black and Latina people uh, to say, oh, he's not a racist because I'm his friend. Uh, Herschel Walker looking at you, man. <laughs> um, but you had also, you know, your Tim Scotts, who's a South uh, senator from South Carolina, you know, trying to wage attacks on um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And it just, you know, really, and I, and I saw lots of people saying this on Twitter, and it's accurate. Um, they weren't there to court black voters. They were there to make it okay to get people, white people to say, it's okay to vote for Trump. You're not a racist if you vote for Trump. That's what their purpose was. Because if you look at any of the people that they trotted out, they don't have large black constituencies. 
like even Tim Scott, if you confronted him on it, would have to acknowledge like, no, I, I don't have a large black constituency, even in South Carolina. Um, so, I, you know, it was a lot of uh, fear mongering about uh, crime in the cities and uh, things of that nature, which is, as we'll probably discuss, kind of weird because Trump's president right now. So if there are problems in the cities, you can't just be like, oh, they're Democrat run. He's president of the whole country, not just the ones run by Republicans, not just like the states and cities run by Republicans. Um, so it's a little like cognitive dissonance to be like, oh, these Democrat run cities are awful and I have nothing to do with it. Reelect me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trump's speech, uh, by the way, did not watch it, did not. I couldn't commit 70 minutes of my life because he gave a 70 minute speech that was just like repetitive poorly structured, poorly written, looking at you, white nationalist Stephen Miller. Uh, <laughs> just insanity. Like, I mean, they, they're going to just do this law and order thing. They're trying to rehash Nixon and Reagan, basically, like, and put it in 2020 uh, form. But uh, it, it was just a rambling from what I've read about it and excerpts I've heard from it. Uh, like, even Fox News, like Chris Wallace said, like, it was really long and it lacked any ump. Like, because uh, he was very flat. Trump is not great delivering a teleprompter speech. Um, contrasted with Biden, who actually gave a really good speech, only 24 minutes, which was drastically shorter uh, than the 70-minute uh, monologue given by Trump. Which, by the way, can we also discuss the fact that uh, he had 1,500 people on the South Lawn, not wearing masks, closely sitting together, and, you know, the huge hatch act violations that we saw during the RNC with the uh, naturalization ceremony. Um, it's just really it's grossly illegal. And there's been some New York Times reporting that Trump really took a lot of pleasure in the fact that nobody could do anything about the hatch act violations. Because do we expect Bill Barr to do anything about it? Absolutely not. Um, so the RNC, eh, you know, it was very hard to watch what I did watch of it. Um and we'll see what the actual bump Trump gets out of it and if that dissipates. So uh, so I actually uh, managed to watch all of it uh, because I'm a masochist. And, um, and yeah, you know, everything moves that obviously, and I want to take a different tack, right? Like it was, it was, they just lied the whole time, right? They kind of lied about, about the coronavirus. They lied about what's actually happening in American streets. They lied about kind of race issues in America. But I actually want to take a different, a kind of a completely different approach because I don't think, I think we expected all of that. What I found most interesting is that what conventions do in uh, four years, like every four years, is not just to like support the president, um, a presidential candidate you're trying to elect in November, but it, it also uh, foreshadows future presidential candidates. Um, so like if you were to take a moment and look ahead to 2024, there was a clear divide in the RNC and in the convention about who they think their standard bearers might be in 24, whether Trump wins the election or not, right? And assuming he doesn't win and can make himself president for life. But assume, barring that, um, assuming we are still in a four-year election cycle, um, the Trump family is going to make an obvious play for the presidency. And and that be, that was, I think people were making a lot of like, you know, no one can say anything good about him, so he's bringing out his family to do so. And his family actually did not do that at all. They did not play the role of like, my dad's a great guy and he used to play baseball with me. Like there was no emotional connection to him in their speeches. They were all policy speeches. Um, and they were all attempted to basically say, 
this is the new or a new Republican dynastic like like political family. And um, first of all, that's incredibly scary. But um, but it's also I mean, it's, it's, it's just the fact, right? Like Don Jr. has been fundraising like crazy for his dad um, since basically since January of 2017. He, you know, um, Ivanka Trump is viewed as kind of like the American princess by the far right um, and, by the, and by conservatives generally. Um, and I think that's probably favorable for her. Like she, and so um, as far as if she wants, you know, wants to make a bid. And so I think the, the big question has been, and you know, Tim Scott represents a different wing, right? Like he, Tim Scott, although um, not like my favorite, like, you know, politician um, is a fairly standard conservative. Um, you know, he, he's kind of a, you know, uh, lower taxes on wealthy people, um, no to the social safety net, um, kind of Republican. And, and you know, he's, he's the type of Republican we're used to seeing. And so you kind of have him on, the, on, the, on another kind of angle. So I thought that was interesting because the, what we're going to see coming, you know, January 20, you know, 21, regardless of who wins the election, begins the presidential election for 24. And so you'll, you know, it's going to be Tom Cotton and the Trumps on one end, and it's going to be Tim Scott um, and, you know, Nikki Haley, I guess, on the other side, trying to be um, traditional Republicans, traditional kind of pre-Trump Republicans. And this goes back to the conversation we had in the last pod, right? Like, is this is this kind of Trumpian Republican idea the actual new kind of, you know, right uh, right of center party in America? And if it is. Uh, then it's going to be one of the Trump children or maybe Tom Cotton, who I actually don't think could beat one of the Trump children, to be completely honest, um, it, it, as like nominee. Like it's going to be like Don Jr. or Ivanka Trump or Jared Kushner. Not, not Jared. I take that. I strike that. Jared's not, Jared doesn't really stand. Like Ivanka's going to run. Like it won't be Jared. But um, that's, that's going to be like the presidential nominee in 24, running against like potentially Senator Harris. Well, then Vice President Harris, we hope. So like it's going to, I thought that as a preview for the party that you think is coming, I thought the RNC um, laid a framework that is drastically different than the conventions of the past, right? Um, and we'll see where we'll see how that plays out. But I think it, it's um, they definitely put some markers down at the convention. Do they, and I just no, go ahead. if I can real quick, I just want to say Tiffany Trump, man, what happened? We were willing to let you slide. You were in law school, I think, at Georgetown. Ed, get your people. <laughs> look, look, I, I, I am uh, hanging my head in shame because uh, we did go to the same law school. We did not apparently learn the same values. Yeah, uh, but, but <laughs> I thought she was just going to be quiet and be like, "Yo, I get my last name is Trump, but I'm not with them." Oh no! And she's no. come out hard body both on Twitter and in her speech at the RNC, and it's like, "Damn, Tiffany, we thought you were a good one. We th- we thought you were worth all our hopes. Rest and die with Baron now." That there might be one good apple amongst the bunch, but I doubt it. No, 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 no. Well, I want to no. ask about when you're, when oh, you're talking about the future of the party. Is a lot of it have to do with you know when you're talking about whether or not they're going to be more Trumpian Republicans, for lack of a better phrase, or the more traditional kind of kind of Republicans that we're more used to. Is there uh, does a, a lot of that have to do with how well he how well he performs in this uh, in this race? Like not just winning and losing, but like like these margins and stuff that they're going to get. Because if he does. Is there like a, hey, he's done well enough that we're going to continue to see this more outlandish uh, Republican politician? Or is it or is it based simply on 
win or lose, and that's what that's what that's what's going to happen for the next uh, for the next four or eight or however many years. And I'll, I'll go back to you, Ed. I mean, look, if he pulls this thing out uh, at this point, you know, I don't think we're going to have much of a democracy. But assuming that I'm wrong about that part, um, there is no. The problem is that he has converted the base, right? So 30, you know, only something like 23 of Americans now self-describe themselves as Republicans. Of that 23% of Americans, he owns 85 to 90% of them. Like, so what is, so over the last four years, a number of people who were traditionally Republicans have become quote unquote independents. They're basically Republicans, but not willing to vote for Trump. And, uh, and so he shrunk the base to some extent, or at least people who are willing to call themselves Republicans but that base he has are incredibly loyal. And so the hurdle for a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley or any, you know, God forbid, a Mitt Romney, you know, or, or someone who's kind of outside the party at this point um, to try to win in a primary uh, is the difficulty of recapturing the imagination of the new Republican base. So you either have to completely regrow the Republican base and say, like, this is, this is the time for us to really decide what Republicanism is and to try to invite people who were in the fold, who left the fold because of Trump to come back in, which I think will be a play that you'll see people making. Um, or you're going to end up in a situation where um, the only people left are Trump voters. Um, and, it, and I think that, un- unfortunately, that's where the Republican Party is. And even if you want to be a more... Um, moderate center or centrist Republican, you still have to respond to the base in the same way that like Biden has to respond to like the AOC, uh, Bernie, Warren, progressive left, right? You have to respond to your party's base. And so there's, there's, a, there's an immutable mark on the, par- on the Republican Party going forward. Um, it's going to take a generation probably to like do away with the harm that he's done to that party over the last four years. Uh, but We'll see. I mean, I just, I don't, right now, I don't see how we get, how Republicans can convince base Republicans um, to reject Republican or Trumpism if Trump wins. Like, I just don't, I just don't think there's any way to get them to reject Trumpism if he wins. If he wins, at least then you can say, look, we lost it all because you guys wanted to like do like all the worst possible thing, be the worst possible version of our party. Um, I think you can say that to them and say, like, are, are you ready to start winning again and, and kind of convert people back into being more moderate? But I think if he wins, that ship has sailed. Yeah, um, like we've talked about on here, um, the Republican Party started to do this anatomy, uh, like autopsy type deal uh, to, to look at how they could evolve and attract minority voters, Latinos and African-Americans. Um and basically, Trump just reset the clock on that, right, by winning in 2016. Um, and to take a step back, uh, the reason why Trump and Trumpism is going to be, I think, here with us to stay is the structure of the Republican primary. Uh, in contrast to the Democratic primary, where delegates are awarded uh, proportionally based on the percentage of the vote you get, the Republican primary is winner takes all, even if it's a plurality. So like if you're winning with 30% of the vote, even though you didn't win, you know, the the majority or even 50% plus like a little bit, you get all those delegates because it's designed to have a winner emerge uh, faster so that they can consolidate. You don't have the Bernie Hillary situation uh, going late into the calendar that you can all consolidate behind one candidate. 
So the problem with the Republican primary process is, you know, you don't need but so much to take all the chips, right? Uh, so like if you have Don Trump Jr., Ivanka, insert whatever Trump, um, just winning 25 to 30% of every state and you got a bunch of other would want to be like, you know, aspiring people wanting to be president that are in the like sort of moderate lane, your Marco Rubio's, your Nikki Haley's, um, whoever, um, that's really tough to beat because they're splitting up the proportion of the vote that they can get. And they're the, the front runner is just stacking up dele a delegate lead because they're winning, not by huge margins, but winner take all. Um, even if you don't reach like a 50% threshold. Um, so I think Trumpism is going to be with us unless Joe Biden delivers like a thrashing on election night, uh, November 3rd, 2020. Like, and it and in the days following, because that's something we're going to have to talk about is I do not think the election, unless Florida go, swings for Biden, I don't know that we will have a decision on election night. I don't think we'll have a concession speech from either side on election night. I want to ask, because we, we've, we've been talking about kind of uh, whether it's Trump and his base or to flip it around, Biden and his base and kind of how he's speaking, how each are speaking to their base and maybe in, in, and more so in Biden's case to the quote unquote independent um, where um, so he, he gives a speech in Pittsburgh where he's talking about uh, kind of it seems like he's trying to sway the fears of, of, of a lot of maybe more moderate Republican or maybe those that are maybe even undecided. I, again, I don't really know how much I believe in an undecided voter in this particular election. Boca. Uh, and, and a lot of it was kind of talk of like how terrible rioting is, how terrible looting is, how you don't have to worry about me being some sort of uh, leftist, crazy, uh, progressive. Um, and and there's some in environmental stuff that he talked about that, that, that was, that was a little concerning. So I, I kind of want to kind of talk about like, him not that he would turn people that would vote for him into Trump voters. I, I don't think that that person really exists, but it's more about dampening the the fire of 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 those that would support him, particularly for younger people that that usually do uh, trend to be a little bit more progressive. And I'll start with you, Mood, because uh, to me that sort of feels like the the clearest way for him to lose is if he just doesn't, there's just not high enough voter turnout. Um, obviously there's some, you know, there are voter suppression things that are happening, but I, but I want to kind of keep the conversation to the, the, uh, the sim, the seemingly obvious decision that the Biden camp has made in terms of really trying to appeal to the moderate Republican or the independent, as opposed to really trying to light a fire under the base and, and get that really high voter turnout for, or, um, for, for the Democrats. So, yeah, um, my sort of thinking on this is that Joe Biden and his campaign have looked at the polls and they've looked at when you ask voters what they're voting for, um, oh, like most voters, their biggest issue is beating Trump. Like it's not for a particular policy issue, a thing they care about. It's nominating somebody who can beat Trump. And I think what the Biden camp is attempting to do is to make sure that they appeal to the widest swath of voters that they possibly can. Um, 
notably, like if you go back to the primary, Biden was the most progressive person. He he's been the he, throughout his entire career, he's been in the middle of the Democratic Party as time has passed and just stayed in the middle. That's where he is. And I think he's attempting, and what their campaign is attempting to do is to signal to those people in the suburbs in the Midwest, particularly those white women that maybe held their nose and voted for Trump, um, despite knowing he was not a very nice person and particularly hated women. Um, you know, you had the Hollywood Access tape come out um, and all of his, the long history he has of just misogynistic things that he's done and said. Um, and I think he's trying to give them permission to uh, vote for him. And, and as we discussed before, every voter that Joe Biden turn, takes away from the Trump camp is a net plus two. Um, and I think they're just trying to appeal to the broadest uh, swath possible. And I've heard them talk about this on the 538 podcast. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's really any evidence that Joe Biden is really turning a whole bunch of people outside of Twitter off with what he's saying. Like it's, you see these arguments on Twitter and people, you know, getting in a big sort of, you know, tiff about it, but you know, that's what we remember. Everybody was calling Joe Biden dead in the water before South Carolina. And then your aunties and your grandmas, including my own in South Carolina, what did they do? They saved Joe <laughs> Biden, black, black, older black voters saved Joe Biden's campaign and basically won it for him. After that point on, whole different story. So I think black people are saying, no, nah, like we get, it's not exactly what we want, but, but this is our guy. And we think this is the guy that will get those people in the Midwest because we realize that's what it takes to win that, you know, you can't a Bernie an Elizabeth Warren. We don't trust them. Even though they have policies, we really dig and particularly younger black people seem to be really crazy about including myself. Um, they seem to realize like, Hey, we got to win the Midwest. We need Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, you get those three states, you win. Like you turn, you you convert the blue wall back, you win. So you know, going back and bringing the blue wall back, and potentially you know maybe getting to Arizona, maybe getting a Florida. You know, further out you have you know a Georgia, a North Carolina that may be within reach. Like the polls indicate, they're within reach. Um, but just playing it conservatively, you you hold what you're accustomed to having, you win. Um, and it's about getting the most possibilities of 270 electoral votes as possible to, to win the whole thing. If this were a popular vote, yeah, you could run, I, yes, you could run your most progressive person because you're going, you're going to turn out your base and you're going to win. There are more of us than there are of them. But with the electoral college, you've got to play the, the, the demographics in the geography. So I, I think, I don't think Moon and I actually disagree here. I think I, I just, I think, I think, I just think this is a riskier proposition than, than maybe he does that, that, there is there is a lot of downside risk to trying to play the middle, um, and I'm just not sure. So you know, there was a uh, right after the uh, 2018 primaries, um, there was a, a black woman political scientist whose name is not coming to mind right now, um, but she basically correctly predicted the the primaries, and she predicted it on a on a basis of a completely different theory than uh, most political scientists. And her theory was that we are, basically that we're so hyper-partisan now that, and voters are so dug in to their sides that the idea of a moderate or independent is like a falsity now. And that the only way to win any election is to drive turnout on your side of the, of the aisle. 
And based on that theory, she predicted the blue wave in the house um, and us regaining the house and, and, and you know, many uh, progressive voter Congress people coming into coming into office. Um, so this is really kind of an interesting case study in kind of political science theory. Um, if she's right, then this bid is actually more dangerous than not. Right. Um, it may still work. Like there are good reasons to believe this might still work. Like Trump is just, Trump is so ba- such a bad uh, force for himself that this could like he could like we might still win even if like it's it's possible that that uh, that theory that the, the hyperpartisanship theory can be right and we still could win because Trump is so bad for himself. Um, but that's what will be happening, right? Like we would have that's what would have been the case. Like I I, I tend to ascribe to that idea. I don't think. Um, I don't think we are a, you know, center-right country anymore. I just don't. I don't think we're a moderate country anymore. I think we are two countries trying to exist on one piece of land. Um, and 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 that that's how 2016 felt to me. I mean, I, I you know, the 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 waking up on November 9th, 2016, felt like waking up in a new country. It was like, I am, I need to learn about the place I actually live because where I thought I lived, I don't. And so I think this is going, you know, I don't know if that's going to, I'm going to lose that feeling coming into November, even if we are successful, but, um, but we're going to have to kind of see where, where this all plays. I, I think, you know, I think Biden also would benefit from just not saying stuff a lot of times. I mean, I think that my biggest issue with him is, you know, if you do you like maybe he's maybe they were seeing internal polling in Pennsylvania that said that the fracking issue was really getting to people, right? And if that, and that's the case, obviously they have internal polling, they should follow their own polling and guidance. But it seems to me that um, going out there and saying like I'm not going to get rid of fracking is like the loop that's going to get played by like AOC environmentalists, like new like uh, uh, Green New Deal environmentalists that will maybe make them less interested in voting for you. Now, to be to Moot's point, I think that, uh, and he's made this point before, you know, look, the choice is between Biden and Trump. And if you, you either going to get back into Paris Accords and start to do something on the environment, or we're going to continue to like completely destroy it. Like those are the two options. Um, but I think it's hard to be an environmentalist voter uh, or a kind of a, a climate change voter and then hear Biden say, I'm not going to get rid of this incredibly destructive uh <laughs> way of extracting natural gas out of the out of the planet and then be like i'm so excited to go uh vote for him and maybe you vote for him but maybe you don't call your 10 closest right. friends to make sure they vote for him like that and that's actually the problem right like you like maybe you go still vote for him because you care about that issue but your 10 friends who don't care about anything really and maybe weren't going to vote that you might have if you were really excited about the candidate like put in a van and like driven to the polls and be like you need to go vote right now you might not do that, and I. So I think this is a risky proposition. Um, I think I don't. I. I but it's based on my belief that I don't know that we have a middle anymore. Um, and we'll see. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about that, and we'll know that some of that in, in November. But we'll know a lot more in, in kind of January, February, March, first 100 days. I mean, if this country actually looks like it's trying to like be a whole country again in a Biden administration, you know, then then I will eat these words. But for now. This feels like um, it feels like a risky play for people who aren't interested in talking to us. I got I I, so. I had an interesting conversation with the uh, Medina Dean's shout out um, friend of the, friend of the show um, and basically what 
what we were talking about is who is the and I'll paraphrase because she she said it much more eloquently than I will. But basically, like who you're not voting for who you necessarily want in office. You're voting for who you want to be your opponent in you know not not your opponent, but the person that you are uh, pushing one way or the other once they get into office. And so I started thinking about one issue voters. Uh, you mentioned climate change voters. Like, you know, if, if you're listening to Joe Biden talk, maybe you don't feel as comfortable about what he's going to be doing. Like, no, you know what, what Trump is, but you also are now starting to get the feeling that Biden is not necessarily going to be able to be moved left, which is something that I've seen uh, a lot of Democrats talk about. Like, well, we'll get him in an office and then we'll move him left. I'm always very, uh, I'm always very cautious whenever people start talking about once they get into office, then they'll start changing. I don't, I'm not really a big believer in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, what if the if, if the only way to, you know, make any sort of real movement on your one issue, whether it's climate or whether it's uh, police brutality as it affects the black community, um, is to have somebody that is uh, so, I mean, I don't know, I'll say it so vile and so disruptive as to kind of um, mm-hmm. radicalize a lot of people into movement. Like, you know, if uh, there there is a fear or I have a fear that if Biden does win, suddenly it's okay, everything's fine. Racism is over again. Kind of like, you know, after Obama won, racism was over for that for that eight year term, which was great. It was fantastic. Um, but like there is a little there is a part of me that is like, okay, well, now that the the more moderate people that have now been radicalized and are now maybe saying, hey man, this stuff is really, really crazy out here. And I'm going to be an active participant in being anti-racism, maybe breaking up some of these systems. Um, maybe they kind of rest on their laurels a little bit about not having the worst person ever in, in this position of power. And so things do go back to normal because normal wasn't working for us, but Biden does look enough like normal, does remind uh, of us enough of previous normals when things were better, quote unquote. Um, is, there any, is there any real logic to that idea that having somebody that is going to move that's going to polarize people more that can maybe will maybe allow for more change to be made than somebody who's in the middle and can kind of cover up a lot of the ills that we've always had. And I'll go right, right, right back to you, Ed. Yeah, look, um, I think that, I think politics is about, is about electing people who are malleable. Like I, I, I just, like it has to be politics is, is just, it's always about, how I can get someone who is receptive to my position. It, it's, I mean, it's, you know, they're always someone who, uh, um, who's much more politically astute than I am. I once said to me, like, you know, it's always only the people on the ballot who are on the ballot, you know? And so Biden and Trump are on the ballot. And so the question for, for, for voters is, is, am I more likely to convince Biden that racism in America is a problem and we need to really do something serious on police issues and we really need to do something serious about the climate and, you know, all the other issues I care about. Um, or am I more likely to be able to convince Trump? And the answer is I'm more likely to be able to convince slash pressure Biden. And, you know, this is, you know, I believe it was LBJ who said to Martin Luther King before the Civil Rights Act was passed in 64. Um, you know, maybe the year before, I think uh, MO, he invited LBJ invited uh, Martin Luther King to the, to the White House. And he said, look, I'm inclined to, like, do the civil rights thing that you want me to do. But you need to get out there and make me do it. And like, that's politics. Like that's, that's, that's real politics. Like you, the, you want someone in the white house who's like, I will sign the bill if you can get it to my desk. And I think that that's like Biden will sign. There's nothing that Nancy Pelosi 
and, and you know, I want to continue to pitch a senator, a majority uh, Senate leader, uh, Warren, uh, would, would pass. There's nothing they would pass that Biden wouldn't sign. Nothing. Like there's that, that's, and that's the reality. Um, so I think it, you do have to kind of play some of this game. Now, that's not to say uh, that people didn't get really too comfortable during the Obama years. I, I, was, I was incredibly frustrated during the Obama years for many reasons, but one of them was that groups that had traditionally put, like, put the, kind of their foot on the pedal, on the gas pedal, the NAACP and, you know, kind of all, you know, the Urban League and all of our kind of organizations that are right now in the streets fighting on police brutality stuff, um, were so elated to see someone who looked like them in the White House that they just completely let up. We know, you know, the first conversation was, no, we got to give him, you know, we got to give him his first hundred days. No, we got to give him his first term. Oh, we lost the midterm. Now we got to give him, you know, we got to give him all four years. Okay. But in that second term, he's going to go all the way for us. And I was like, no, he's not like, like you, (laughs) what you see is what you get. Like, you know, um, and so I think that's true with Biden too. Like it is what you see is what you get. But I do think that the groups won't, um, won't take the pressure off this time. I don't think that anybody's, con- I don't think anybody, any activist community is persuaded that Biden is going to like try to do something on his own that is going to be, you know, monumental or world changing. I think everybody understands that the job is to get him in office, hold a democracy together for four more years and pressure him to do the things that we know need to be done. And like, that's, that's the game. Um, and, you know, maybe four years after that, I'm like, I, you know, I'm a Warren Democrat. Warren is not going to run for president again. Um, but I'll be very interested in seeing who tries to fit that bill, like who tries to become the advocate for like, I believe in big structural change. um, And I believe that policy is how you do it. Like I'm looking for that next candidate, right? Um, We'll get to this conversation, I'm sure at some point later in the part, or maybe not today, but like in later parts, but this is actually what's going to make it really difficult for Harris in 24, in a a 2024 run, because she's going to be beholden to whatever Biden has done uh, before she starts running. And you know, I think it's unlikely that she's going to necessarily fit the bill of like a Warren Democrat um, because Biden's not a Warren Democrat. So, you know, we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, mood. So, you know, I, I think brutal turnout is obviously huge, you know, and you want to keep your enthusiasm. So I don't mean to act like that's not important. But I want, if we remember 2018, what was the big issue in 2018 was health care. And I don't think within the age of a pandemic and huge massive unemployment and people getting sick and dying um that's gonna be on that's gonna be discussed a lot coming forward right and what we could have done to stop all these preventative preventable uh illnesses and deaths and one of the candidates has an actual health care plan right the other keeps promising us two weeks oh yeah I'll get, he, it's like a term paper and he's making excuses <laughs> to his professor like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just give me another two weeks, I'll get it to you, professor, whatever. You know, my mom died, whatever. You know, excuse, my dog died now, too. <laughs> my, my dog's mother died. <laughs> you know, like, whatever you can pull out of the excuse bag. And we still, like, yeah. we're, we're into his, we, Trump is completing his first term. And he keeps promising us this big, beautiful healthcare plan that never materializes. Um, and I think, Healthcare is what drove 2018 because everyone saw the continued efforts of the Trump administration to uh, repeal the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, known colloquially as Obamacare. And now we're seeing people whose you know, healthcare is tied to employment 
Well, now they're wondering, like, what happens if I get sick? What happens if I get COVID-19? Um, and those are very real issues. And the fact that the federal government has no national strategy um, for handling the coronavirus, but can intervene today to try to make sure the Big Ten has football and getting them rapid testings. <laughs> like, are, this is a joke, and I cannot believe that Trump thinks this is going to play well, that just having college, I guess it, he thinks his constituency is going to go for that and eat that up. But like it sets, your, it sets you up for the fact that, oh, look at them. They drop everything to get college football back. What about all the Americans that are out of work or sick or have had a family member die? What about them? The 180 plus thousand. Like it sets up. This is all he cares about is big money, which is college sports with unpaid labor in college athletes. Like it sets up a damaging attack ad. Like it, it I'm sure the Lincoln project is hard at work right now on something. Cause it's just, it's a joke. College sports aren't that big. I get it's a big money maker, but like, I, I, I real, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you, bro. Like college sports. Oh, like, like, you got, I mean, like, like the, I get, I get it's a huge culture. Look, I'm from the South. Yeah, I'm, that's I know. what I'm saying. I'm saying I know, like, but, it, but, but it I'm does, saying like in comparison to all the people out of work I'm not, I, and sick and dying, I'm not, like I'm not arguing it pales in comparison. Yeah, I'm not arguing with you about the actual importance. Please, please don't, please don't get me confused about that. Let me disabuse you of that notion immediately. I'm not actually advocating for college football over like uh, having healthcare not tied to uh, employment or the unemployment rate, generally speaking, or the uh, nearly uh, 190,000 people that have died from this. That is not at all what I'm saying. I am, however, saying that college sports is a huge, huge thing. I mean, like, he, there's a reason he went to the Big Ten, not the Pac-12, right? Like, there's a reason he's not on the West Coast with the with, oh, with oh, I know because the, like the Midwest. It's about electoral politics. Exactly. I totally, I totally get what he's doing, but I don't know he, that it's going to play the way I think he thinks it's going to play. Like, I get a lot of people care about it. It's big business. I get it. I get that entirely. But when we get to the first debate and two hundred thousand Americans are dead, like, and you're like freeing up these resources to get rapid testing for college athletes, but not the rest of the student body at these schools. Who, if you like follow the stories, like University of Alabama in particular is having a really rough time with positive tests. Like we're about to see a bunch of kids start going back to school after Labor Day. Like it's going to be a bad look if outbreaks are breaking out in all these schools, but suddenly you could find resources to provide testing to college athletes who we maintain are amateurs and should not be any more important than any other student or any other son or daughter at college, right? It's a bad. It's a bad look. I get it. I get the whole. I get the importance because you know we're both. We're all from the right. south, and football is probably in front of religion and importance in the south. <laughs> I'll, I'll only say this: that uh, the reason that North Carolina has a new or or got a new governor is because of the bathroom bill they got passed under McCrory. And that oh yeah, they messed with the ACC yeah, tournament. Not, and we not can't just have the that. ACC tournament, the NCAA tournament, just a whole bunch of sport. Like yeah. And that's what that's what got him out of there. Like for for a state that is not a historically great democratic state or anything like that in terms of a black voter or anything like that, they got McCrory up out of here for that reason. And if and I feel like if if President Trump thinks that he can somehow look at as the savior of college football, because like a lot of these you know these um college football coaches are the highest paid state workers in their state, like they're incredibly powerful and stuff like that. And so, like, yeah, there is a there is a narrative to be formed. Yes, the, what you're what you're saying is 100 percent right. Like in reality, in the bigger scheme of things, yes, obviously, there are much more important things than sports. I'm just saying 
emotional voters vote as such. And like being, if you can save, it's, it's really more about like, if you don't have it and then they can tie your inaction as the president to the reason that they don't have college football, that's, that's the, that's the terrible look. Right. And then if you can not only not have that associated with you, but then turn around and be like, Oh, I got you. The Democrats didn't want you to have college football. They were scared, but I, the trumpeter of all of this, of, of this greatness that I am doing, I brought the, you know, coming into fire, uh, chairs of fire and, and the whole, the whole kid caboodle, like that would be really, really important for him and big for him, which is why you're having these conversations uh, uh, with Kevin Warren, the, the, the first black Big Ten commissioner, by the way, that, which is, that's, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's, yeah, that's, oh. that's, a, that's, a, that's a hell of a, my man's is in a really tough spot. Yeah, that is, <laughs> yes. that's a super tough spot. And if you actually, if you, uh, you read a little bit about his family and like, the civil rights um, struggle that they've been a part of for generations. It's actually really, really interesting, but yeah, that's a, that's a definitely a tough spot for him to be in. I, I kind of want to have a, just a quick question and this can be just kind of an upper, quick up or down question, but like, what are your feelings on one issue voters? Like, like what does, I mean, does that, does that person not necessarily exist this time around? Or I don't know. I just, I'm just trying to think, does that make people kind of, can you tune everything out that's going on, even if you are a one-issue voter now? And I'll, I'll hit you back, Moo. I feel like, I mean, I don't have any empirical evidence for this, but I feel like it exists on the right a lot more on the issue of abortion. Um, that's their excuse to, for all the atrocities that their policies uh, and their the administrations that they're just willing to, like, get along with, like, evangelical white. Let me be clear, because there are evangelicals on the left as well um, and on the right that are not white. Um, but white evangelicals, like they just basically, uh, they, they use abortion as their excuse to get down with everything else that conservatives do. The things that clearly don't benefit them, the, the tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations. Um, so I think they exist, but I think they exist in larger numbers on the right. Um, but again, I don't have empirical evidence for that, but I just don't hear, like, I get that. I feel like if you're a Democrat, you care about the climate. You care about racial, like you care about all these things because you see the bigger picture and like not no one of those things can be divorced from one another. Because if you care about climate change, well, who's most adversely affected by the changing climate? Those who are on the lower socioeconomic levels are They're They're the most directly exposed um, to the consequences of climate change. They live in the places where they're, you're they're exposed to pollution. Um because, you know, do we think the home values next to the power plant or the coal plant, uh, do we think they have great, like, high home values? No. So poor people live close to those places and black and brown people live in those places and are exposed to, um, you know, these pollutants that cause cancer, that cause, you know, asthma and other respiratory illnesses. Um, so, you know, these things can't be, and I think, progressives understand that, that all these things are intertwined, right? And that's why you, you do hear from Biden talking about these things all matter. And like, you can create green jobs to help the economy and combat climate change. And that's why I think you see the sort of Green New Deal being argued as it's both racial justice and an economic issue. You can do both. And that's the way to package it, to make it palatable for everyone and also to help everyone. Yeah, I think we're actually, I, I agree with Mook that, that uh, there have been more one, like single issue voters on the right. 
um, you know, it's abortion, it's lower my taxes are usually kind of like are the big two constituencies on the right. Um, I think we are seeing the rise of, of single issue voters on the left, though. I think this is actually one of the things that has made the left, the progressive left more polarizing is that they have become, um, I don't know if I don't know if I want to call them single issue voters, but I do think that they are single primary issue voters. Like they have a, it's just, it's one real issue. And then they're like, we also care about some other stuff. But, but I think, I think it's, um, and I think that you're going to see like Gen, Gen Zers, you know, are climate change activists and they should be right. Like, I mean, you know, millennials, the, the old, the younger, you know, the oldest millennial is like 40. Right. So the oldest one of our generation is already like, I'm about to be on the downhill. <laughs> I mean, it's, look, look, 40 is known as like going, like being over the hill. And like, that's the, so, but I think, I think that like, if you're, if you're a millennial, you're in your late twenties at, at the very youngest and you're in your approaching 40 and you're thinking about your children and your grandchildren, you're thinking legacy already. I mean, at that, you know, around this point, Gen Zers are like, I have to live with this. Like I have to live here. <laughs> um, and I think that, so I think that you're seeing a lot more Gen Zers become climate change activists and maybe single issue voters on that. I think that, you know, young uh, black and brown voters, black voters in particular, are probably becoming more energized uh, post-Ferguson, post-Black Lives Matter as single issue voters on racial justice. Um, I think that, and what I think that means is that you will never have a candidate in the Democratic Party, at least, who doesn't feel like they have to speak to that issue, right? And I think, so So I, I don't have a problem with single issue voters, Um I think that there has to be that even single issue voters have to have flexibility in how they're willing to approach candidates and elections. But I mean, you know, I think that to the extent there is, if to the extent a single issue voter means that there's a fervent diehard part of the party that you know you can only win if you speak to their interests. And if those interests are things that I also happen to believe in, like, you know, climate change and racial justice, um, then I, you know, I'm not a single issue voter. I care about the broad package, but, but I, but I respect it. And I think it's probably going to, we're seeing the rise of it on the left and, and maybe that'll be a good thing for our party. You know, maybe it, it, I think it might make it easier to consolidate our tent because the, the Democrats big problem is like, we're too big of it. We care about everything. And I think if we started to kind of be a little bit more like factions um, and there were kind of your environmentalists, your racial justice folks, your, your, you know, blue job, blue collar economy folks, we could kind of have like a five point platform that would make it a lot easier to talk to voters if we really had that prioritization happening instead of what we kind of have now and more traditionally in the tent, which is like, I want a better America uh, in all the ways. And it's like, okay, well, how do I, as a candidate, package a better America and a vision for a better America while speaking to all the you know, issues that everyone cares about? So I think that some, some of the factionalizing may actually be good um, down the road, but you know, the thing with factions, as our founding framers uh, would say, is, you know, that they devolve uh, into tribes and, and then you get kind of the evangelical right um, and kind of the fat cats in the Republican Party. So it, it has its downsides for sure. But I, I think that we still have we're still in the upside part of it uh, in the left. But I do think we're going to see more single issue voters. I, I want to get you guys out of here on this. Um, just the kind of the dichotomy of what's, uh, of what's gone on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, on the one hand, you have Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back and is uh, is currently paralyzed uh, after a police officer thought he was going for a weapon in his car. Um, and uh, after not uh, initially being called out for 
um, for Mr. Blake. Just he happened to be a black guy that was on the scene when when the police showed up. Uh, and then you you juxtapose that to um, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who's a 17 year old white boy who um, killed two and shot another um, and how he was treated while being visibly armed um, and how he was waved away from the police. And he finally turned himself in later uh, and to say nothing of President Trump, uh, not not condemning uh Rittenhouse who has since been charged with murder. Um I, I, I just want to kind of leave this an open ended thing because this this entire podcast started out uh you know it, several months ago now um when George Floyd uh was killed uh Amon Aubrey uh like the the list has been I mean Elijah McClain like the list is kind of the hashtags have kind of continued to Rihanna Taylor have kind of continued to pile up while we've been doing this but um just as kind of a snapshot, whatever progress it feels like we may be on the cusp of making uh, this this past week or so has been just a lot in regards to uh, just showing that there's there has not been much movement in either the discourse or the actual um, action of, of police. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. Luke. So I guess the way I want to approach this is uh, this is why elections matter because we have not had an honest conversation in this country about right-wing extremism and terrorism, frankly. Um, Christopher Ray, the current director of the FBI has been very clear that, you know, right-wing extremism is the number one terror threat that we face. It's not, it's not Islamic terrorism, it's domestic right-wing extremism, whether it be Dylan Roof or, you know, in this instance where you're seeing uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and there've been others as well. Um, you know, we see them, you know, basically shutting down legislatures by going in these states where you can open carries legal, you know, all it took was the great conservative Ronald Reagan having the Black Panthers have that happen one time. And they got rid of open carry in California, right? That, that was a wrap after that point. But um, you're seeing like the, the just incredibly different treatment that these people get. Um, I've watched both, like you, you see both the Washington Post and the New York Times have both uh, compiled videos that track the movements of Kyle Rittenhouse that night. Um, and you just see the, the the law enforcement treats him like he's a liberator, like he's helping them do their job, like he's been deputized uh, to help protect businesses. They don't question how young he is while carrying an AR-15. They, they give him water. They're very happy with him and the other alleged militia people. Like he's not even from there. He's from 30 minutes away across the state line in Illinois. Um and he shoots people, three people, and just leaves the scene. Just, you know, puts his hands up when he's coming back so he doesn't get shot by the police. And then immediately just goes back home like, no big deal. Shot three people. Meh. Um, and, and you're seeing the, like, Trump won't denounce him. He was in Kenosha today. Um, and spent more, didn't mention Jacob Blake by name once. So notable. Uh, but did go visit some of the destruction from some of the rioting and stuff, right? He spent a lot of time being very concerned about property, but nothing to say about, you know, a, a young man who was shot seven times in the back and is paralyzed and is fighting for his life. Um, and it's really just shameful. And it's, you know, we have to start changing the framing of the conversations about these people because right-wing extremism is a really serious issue that we're going to have going forward, even if we do defeat Trump. Um, these people are heavily armed. 
They think that their way is the right way. And you have, you know, the Tom Cottons of the world pinning New York Times op-eds talking about unleashing the military on the streets and, t- and Trump's out here fanning the flames. Um, you have, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson saying that, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse was just there to maintain order because nobody else would. Like, are you cr- like, it's insanity. He was breaking the law just by having the rifle in the first place. He's out past curfew. But nobody has anything to say to him, right? The officers recognize they're out past curfew too. Like they have a problem with all the Black Lives Matter protesters being out past curfew. No issues with Rittenhouse whatsoever. Um, and we know what the reason for that is. And that's the problem is when you look at how law enforcement treats people, um, it, it's the problem is like, we see you, we can we see it on video. And for Trump and Bill Barr today to be talking about there's no systemic racism in policing um, or in this country, it's it's like don't believe what you hear, don't believe what you can see with your own two eyes is what they're essentially telling us. Um, look, I, I I struggle what to say here because um, there's just nothing new to see here. Um, a radicalized domestic white nationalist extremist fringe group of Americans have existed since America has existed. Um, And, you know, post-Civil War, we get the KKK. We get, you know, 50, 100 years of lynchings. Um, You know, and then largely driven underground by the Civil Rights Movement, that if, if there's any progress from the Civil Rights Movement, it was that people who were formerly comfortable stating their white nationalist beliefs publicly um, were driven underground by it, and but they didn't go away, right? I think that there was this there was this theory in American history, and we may have talked about this before, but um, that like all Americans were against the Nazis. Like there is this kind of like fundamental American history, the way we teach history in American schools in particular, that you know um, Nazis were bad, we defeated them, um, all of us together, all of us Americans, and we we forget that some sizable portion, like a pollable portion of Americans supported the Nazi effort. And, and so the, the myth of America, the, the, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is one where we are always on the right side of history collectively. The entire American country is always on the right side of history. Um, but the reality has always been more complicated than that. Like the Kyle Rittenhouses and the, you know, um, the, the Trump, uh, folks who who drove through downtown Portland shooting paintballs at people, uh, one and one of whom, you know, if the reports are believed, um, was shot and killed um, in Portland, have always been there. And I think that you know we're we're three sons of the South. Like no one has to tell us that it's always been dangerous to be in crowds of like you know uh, young white men. Like that that's always been a particularly treacherous environment. Because one of them could be Rittenhouse. It always it's always been that case. And so I think that the challenge here for me is that there is nothing, there's nothing new to say um, about the moment because the moment has been where we've been for so long. I but I I, you know, and I really struggle um, to remain optimistic about this. I think it's I think it's really important to try to maintain hope. I think that like I actually believe that hope is an audacious like reality. I think it takes real um, courage to be hopeful. Uh, but I am not sure I have all the courage it takes 
most days um, to be hopeful on this front. Like, it just seems in order to fix this is a complete re-education of like American history. Like you need, a, you need to basically start with people, like people who are like <laughs> newborns right now and start telling them the real story of America, right? You have to like start now, like telling babies, like, look, here's America. You know, it was born in slavery and genocide and has emerged progressively over time to become better. But it has always had weak points. And you can either be one of the weak points or you can be one of the people who helps us fix it. And you have to say that from like the time they can't speak until they're like a voting adult. Um, and the reality is that in pockets of this country, the exact opposite indoctrination is and has been happening for forever, right? Rittenhouse's mother drove, drove him across state lines to kill people. Like, this is not a situation where a, a rogue rebel 17-year-old snuck out of the house to go do something funky. Like, his mother drove him with the gun to that site. I mean, first of all, I'm, she needs to be arrested for accomplice murder, which I, you know, I assume is you know, in the works or should be in the works. Um, but there, there is a whole re-education moment that has to happen in this country if, we're, if we seriously want to fix it. So I, I say that to say, like, this is, a, this is the Rittenhouse situation is directly connected to a long history of white nationalist terror. Um, I would like to see a Department of Justice get serious about that. I think a, a Biden Department of Justice with the right AG at the helm could actually label uh, white nationalists as domestic terrorists and actually start going after them the same way we go after like, you know, uh, terrorist Muslim groups that we have, who we've been villainizing, uh, you know, some, in, some who are innocent, who we've been villainizing since 2001. Like, I think if we started putting the same energy we put on mosques in, uh, in rural counties mm. on, you know, KKK meetings, we might actually have progress at least on people not dying. Like, I'm not sure it's going to solve the, it won't solve the education problem we have, um, the American myth problem we have, but it will at least maybe keep the written houses from killing more people in the streets. Well said, and I will leave it there. Uh, th now we're, we're coming to the, the end of politics aside, but before we do, we, all, we always like to give a closing argument. This is an opportunity for Ed and Mood to get anything specific off their chest that, you know, throughout the last week and change uh, about something specific that's, that's just been lying on their heart. And so I will start with you, Mood. So I think this may be something we all, uh, I know we all certainly thought about uh, with Chadwick Boseman, um, a fantastic actor, a Howard alum, uh, passing away uh, from colon cancer. Uh, just, you know, a, a tremendous loss of a great light, uh, you know, incredible talent, um, inspired so many, just, I mean, just, I mean, it's one of his roles. It's his largest role because it just, Black Panther um, playing T'Challa. Um, you know, it, how many kids have gotten to see a big name superhero who's not a sidekick? He's his own uh, deal and it made I think a billion dollars um, won some Oscars um, and you have a black director Ryan Coogler uh, directing it um, who's also directed some great movies like Fruitvale Station um, and just you know featured an over like majority black cast um, and just you know he was only 43 and it's just a tragic tragic loss of such an incredible actor um, who worked for four years, you know, just struggling through fighting cancer and, and continue to make these incredible movies, playing Thurgood Marshall, playing James Brown, playing Jackie Robinson. 
uh, just, you know, the joke always was like every, whatever famous black person in history, <laughs> we got your guy, man. It's Chadwick Boseman. Uh, so just, you know, I, it's really hit me hard. I tried to rewatch Black Panther and I couldn't get through it. Um, just because it's, you know, it's been particularly for Howard, we've had a lot of tragedy this past month. And it's, you know, to lose Chadwick was just another um, tragedy amongst a host of them. And so, you know, I'm certainly grateful for his body of work and his inspiration that he provided to so many of us um, and his fight. And, you know, it should be a reminder for all of us to uh, go get screened. Um, you know, healthcare is a real issue for this exact reason. Talk to your doctor. Don't just go in and rely on what they uh, tell you. Ask questions. Um, you know, we have situations where, you know, Serena Williams almost died giving birth, right? Like you have to insist on these things and you even see biases amongst doctors about the pain threshold, about pain tolerance of black people. Um, so yeah, I think what we can take uh, in addition to his incredible body of work and life that he lived was take your health seriously, insist on asking questions, read up on issues, you know, WebMD it up before you go to the doctor. Like I get that that shouldn't be the Bible that you go by. But, you know, have some background knowledge on whatever you think the issue may be so you can ask some informed questions of your uh, healthcare professional. Yeah, I, I actually have, I, I was going to say the, you know, same, you know, just kind of reflecting on Chadwick's life this week. I think that we've all, you know, our kind of outside of the pod and in our chats and with, with lots of friends have been reflecting on um, on why this particular um, loss, like, I, I don't think any of us are particularly kind of like, we're not big followers of celebrity and like, you know, we don't, you know, like we're not big pop culture people. Um, but this one seems to penetrate and seems to hit. And I think, um, I think that, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. I think one of them is like, you know, we are, you know, six, seven years younger than he was when he was diagnosed. Um, and so that like the kind of places the, you know, this pod is called like that's black male. Right. And like black male health is a problem, right? Like black men either don't have access to healthcare because, you know, like be like you were saying, like health uh, health insurance is often tied to employment and we're often the, the, the least, you know, the most underemployed um, or least employed people. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of real concerns about uh, what it looks like to have access to like health justice. And, um, and, and, his, and he, this is someone who presumably had that access, right? Like he was, you know, in Hollywood, he was, um, you know, he was performing, but, um, but I think that it is an indicator. I think that what hits me is uh, if it can be him, it can definitely be me, you know? And so I hope that everyone, I hope that, that in particular the black men and the, and the women who love black men who are listening to this, to this pod are saying, look, Chadwick Boseman was 39 when he was diagnosed with, with stage three colon cancer. That is the most preventable and most common type of cancer. In this, and, and I'm going to make sure you don't die from that. Right. Like I can't I can't stop, you know, police from shooting you and I can't stop Rittenhouse from finding you in the streets when you're in a protest. But I can make sure that when you go to your, your your primary care doctor or you go to the clinic or wherever you get your medical care, that you say, I want to be screened. I want to know what's happening with my body. I'm worried about this as a black man um, because I know I'm disproportionately affected by this and a host of other like health maladies. So um, so I hope I hope this is a point for encouragement for people to say, like, look. I'm going to take, you know, take my health seriously um, because, you know, we deserve to be here. Like we did, I, you know, someone posted recently, you know, that one of the things that made these, this whole, these whole months so difficult with the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black and brown communities is like, 
we deserve to live. And I think that uh, kind of has been one kind of gut punch after the other on that front. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's, let's encourage each other to, um, and, and the women who are listening, encourage the black men, you know, to, uh, you know, get that, get your annual, like, this is, this is a, we have to, we have to be serious about uh, taking care of ourselves and each other if we're going to be here. Uh, and I don't normally do this uh, with a closing argument, but I, this has been kind of playing on my heart for uh, a minute. Uh, September 1st, the, which is today, the, the, is the first day of Suicide Prevention Month. Um, mm. And, you know, pandemic has had a lot of effects on a lot of people, um, whether it's an underlying thing or exacerbating it, or even if it's just popped up and while you're kind of just, you know, kind of clawing the walls at home. Uh, but you know, you we we want you here, um, and I know that things can get very very dark really quickly, uh, or 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 it happens so slowly in, in which you don't even don't even realize. Uh, but like you know, reaching out to your friends and telling them that you're not okay, um, or or reaching out to a medical professional. Um, I know it's not always easy. Uh, I'll say particularly maybe for black men because of our, our ideas are of masculinity and strength and things like that. But it's important, man. Like it's, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you're not mentally in a good space, that you're not okay, that you need help. All of those things are completely understandable and especially completely understandable right now as we're all kind of social distanced away from one another. Uh, I can tell you how important and helpful these calls have been. Um, while, you know, yes, it's, it's, I've enjoyed, you know, kind of hosting and, and helping to produce this content with you guys, but, you know, just being able to have a weekly or sometimes more than weekly call with, 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 yep. with, with y'all who are, who are like family to me has been really, really important. Uh, so just please reach out if you, if you, if you need somebody to, to, to talk to or anything like that. There are, there are, there's information available online. Please do that. Um, if they want to, um, if they want to follow you on social and where, where can they do that? I'm at Edward Williams two on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And move. What about you, man? Uh, they can find me at mood ESQ. And I just want to add to what you said that uh, national suicide prevention uh, hotline 1-800-273- Eight two five five. That's beautiful, man. Uh, I'm H U Cosell. You can find uh, my stuff on Instagram and Twitter, H U C O S E L L, or my red work at H U All right, guys. Thank you so much again. Y'all be easy. Y'all be safe. And at home, y'all wear y'all mask. We out.